morning, Rev. How are you all? Happy Sunday. Happy Resurrection Day. Uh, my name is Preston Sprinkle. I'm a, uh, a member here. I think I'm a member, or at least I go here. I don't know if you guys have membership, but um, I've been going here, and uh, I'm uh, new to the area. I've been here for about eight months. My family and I moved up here eight months ago to um, start an extension site for Eternity Bible College, and some of you have heard about that. Um, but it's good to be with you, and uh, it's uh, good to have our pastor back today. He's going to be landing sometime today. Does anybody know when, he actually, when they actually come in this evening sometime? Okay, so they're en route. They're on the plane right now. And uh, I'm, I just, I'm so excited that, we, that, that, that this church has a global focus. And uh, I want to take some time in a second just to pray for Bren and the team. And, uh, but I just got to say I'm so excited that uh, this church um, d- does not just look at the things that are just right in front of it, but is trying to expand its horizons and has a, a global mindset. I really, I truly believe that that when a church only looks at those things right in front of them, it loses its total effectiveness. I mean, I think it's so important for every church really to have some significant global focus because our God, we serve a global God, right? We serve a God who is calling all nations, all people, all languages to him. And he is establishing a worldwide kingdom that will not fail. I love that scene in, in Revelation 5 when uh, Jesus, you, you get a scene of the throne room and Jesus is surrounded by everybody and they're singing out, worthy is the lamb who is slain, who is, I'm paraphrasing, who is you know, redeeming every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language so that they may reign upon the earth. Our God is on the move and he is seeking to establish a worldwide kingdom through bringing people back to him. And so to play even a a small role over in the Philippines, I think is a very significant thing. And so I'm just, I'm so excited that they're over there. I'm I'm thrilled to hear what God did with them and how God can reshape our hearts through this ministry in the Philippines. So let me pray for uh, Brent and the team right now. God, we thank you for calling uh, these men and women over there um, to the Philippines and we pray for the ministry there, Lord, that you would use us in some way, Lord, uh, to help further what you're doing there in the Philippines. Uh, we thank you that you are a global God, that you're not some tribal deity who reigns over Boise or Idaho or America. God, we thank you that we serve a king of all creation who is calling all peoples to himself, Lord. We pray that you would use us in some way to help that church there, Lord. We pray for Brent and the team. Uh, as they uh, come back to America. And we pray that their zeal, their passion, the way they saw you work, Lord, would be contagious and that it would stir in us a renewed vigor, passion to want to serve you uh, where you have us here in Boise, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, I want to do something uh, a little bit different this morning. I want to go back to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. I want to look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 this morning, and I want to focus on the character of God. Uh, I teach an Old Testament survey class uh, at at my college, and every year, uh, before I even begin teaching that Old Testament survey, I, I, I talk about different ways of reading the Old Testament. And so I want to do that just briefly here. You know, um, when we read the Old Testament, when Christians read the Old Testament, sometimes we read the Old Testament uh, morally, meaning that we go to the Old Testament to look for moral examples of how to live. 
And maybe you've, you know, been through studies, you know, where, where you know, we, we try to be like David or be like Abraham or be like Moses or be like Gideon. We look at these various characters in the Old Testament and sometimes we look, we, we, we think that they are there in the Old Testament to give us good moral examples of how to live. Now, there are some there are some moral examples of how to live in the Old Testament, but man, if you look at a lot of these guys and girls and you try to follow their behavior, I mean, you could end up in prison. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the way they lived, you know, if you look closely at even people like David and Abraham and Moses and all these people, um, you begin to see that I don't think that they existed in Scripture to give us moral examples of how to live. I don't think that the Old Testament's designed, I don't think it's given to us just to give us moral examples of how to live. Rather, the Old Testament reveals a God who works through, oftentimes, immoral examples. That's the main theme of the Old Testament, is is a perfect God using imperfect people through sometimes really messed up circumstances to carry out his will. And so, uh, before we even enter into Genesis 1 and 2, the main question we have to ask is what do these two chapters teach us about God? And I'm going to say that every chapter in the Bible, every story in the Bible, every passage, every verse, we should ask that same question. What does this teach us about the person and work of God? And so when we get to Genesis 1 and 2, and, and, and if you've been a believer for any number of years, you, you may know that, you know that there's a lot of de- debates and questions that surround these two chapters. And, and, and some of these debates, I think, are, are worthy to engage in. You know, people say, well, you know, how old is the earth? And they go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to try to figure out how old the earth is. Or they try to figure out, well, now where was Eden? You know, wh- wh- was it over in Iraq or was it here? Was it there? Where in the Middle East was Eden or you know, theologically, some people say, well, did mosquitoes exist before the fall? Could God have created those creatures, you know, these blood-sucking creatures? And, and some of these questions, these could be good questions to ask, but primarily, we must begin with the primary question is, what does Genesis 1 and 2 teach us about God? If all we do is figure out the age of the earth, we don't understand who God is from these chapters. I think we've missed the main point. So here's the summary of Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, this is going to get, if you have a Bible, uh, it'd be good to, to pay close attention. I'm going to be refer, referring to a few things in the text. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give us two different characteristics of God. And, and when I say Genesis 1 and 2, what I really mean is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4. In Genesis 2, verse 4, that's a transition verse. And then beginning in Genesis 2, 4 to the rest of Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 25, that gives us another picture of God. Okay? And just to summarize, Genesis 1, or Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, focuses on the transcendence or sovereignty of God. Transcendence just means, you know, something that's far beyond us. The transcendence or sovereignty of God, Genesis 1. And Genesis 2 focuses on the intimacy or nearness or personalness of God. And, and, and these, you know, some people think that these aspects of God are so different that there's no way that these two chapters could be talking about the same God. And in fact, there's a lot of books written on Genesis 1 and 2, and a lot of people believe that 
these were written by two different authors. Genesis 1 was written by some guy, and Genesis 2 was written by somebody else. And, and the guy of Genesis 1 is writing about this deity, and, and the guy of Genesis 2 is writing about this deity. Because some people look at these two characteristics of God, these two chapters, and they say there's no way that one being, one divine being, can, can exhibit both of these characteristics. And I can almost sympathize with this. When I say that Genesis 1 and 2 give different portraits of God, I don't mean these portraits contradict each other, but they are quite different, as we'll see. But the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 is we serve a God who is both sovereign and near. That he is transcendent, that he is categorically different than us, but he also enters into our lives and becomes our friend. He desires to reign over us, and he de- desires also to get near and relate to us. Both are true. Let's look at Genesis 1, first of all, the transcendence of God. Let, let me just give you, um, well, let me first of all say that if you just read Genesis 1, I mean, just a plain reading of Genesis 1, I think it, it is pretty clear that God reigns, that God rules over the universe. I mean, Genesis 1 is all about You know, God speaking creation into existence. But let me give you three kind of particular reasons within Genesis 1 that that helps strengthen that truth that God is transcendent. Number one, um, the name for God, or the title for God used over and over and over in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew term Elohim. 35 times you see the word Elohim occur. And it's just translated in English, God, like G-O-D, Okay. Elohim is a generic word for a powerful being. And in other religions, they also use the same term or an equivalent term like Elohim. It just refers to a powerful being. It doesn't tell anything about the personalness of that being. It just says that that being is divine. He is different than humans. Now, here's the thing. In the Hebrew language, if you wanted to emphasize something, uh, you just repeat it over and over and over. Now, you know... You know, with, with, with our computers, our emails, Facebook, whatever, when we want to emphasize something, where we use, you know, put it in bold or italicize it or put it in all caps, right? You've, you ever do that? You feel like someone's yelling at you because they have right in, email to you in all caps, you know? We have different ways of emphasizing something, but the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, they didn't have those options. So what they did is that they wanted to emphasize something, they just repeat it over and over and over. So the fact that in Genesis 1, the term God is repeated 35 times tells us very clearly that the author wants us to get that main point, that Genesis 1 is about God. The second reason why uh, this chapter emphasizes the transcendence and sovereignty of God is you see a lot of action going on in this chapter. In fact, there's 46 verbs, 46 verbs and only one subject of every single verb, the one subject is God. God is commanding, God is speaking, God is naming, God is blessing, God is hurling the universe into existence. And everything else is just is being acted upon. There is one actor, it's like a massive action movie with one hero, with one character, with one star. He's, he's hurling the universe into existence. And so you, when you read the very language of Genesis 1, you can only conclude that this God is on the move and this God reigns. He is in control of everything. The third reason 
why uh, Genesis 1 emphasizes the transcendence of God. And, and this, uh, um, I, I've debated about whether or not to even mention this one because it can get a little kind of academic and educational and, and it doesn't necessarily leap off the pages. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and go for it. Um, the third reason why Genesis 1 emphasizes the transcendence of God has to do with the historical background of Genesis 1. Let, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, let me ask you a few questions. Who, who, write, who wrote Genesis? I know there's a debate about that, but the majority of you, who, who, wrote, who wrote Genesis? Moses, okay. Does anybody know uh, about when, like the, the general time frame, specific date, whatever, when Moses would have written this book? And again, there's debates about that, but give me, give me a uh, general date. What, say it again. 4,000 BC, uh, not qu- that, that's a little older. Uh, 1,400. I can't see a thing, but who said that? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> that's a great answer, 1,400. It's like almost exactly right. Um, but yeah, about 1,400 BC. Now, um, g- g- throw out some names of some significant empires or nations that existed around that time. And there, there's one that, if you've been a Christian for any number of years or even seen some recent movies, <laughs> um, you, you could probably guess at least one significant nation in existence around this time. Egypt. Egypt's the big one, right? That's where they came out of. Um, give me some others that may have been exi- in, in, in kind of in power at this time. In Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a region that, that has two different kind of nations, Assyria and Babylon. And and some other ones, the Hittites in the north, north of, north of Israel. And so you have other cultures, other civilizations around at this time. Follow me. This is going to come together here in a second. Um, with all these other nations, they all had different views of how the worlds came to be. They all had other accounts of creation. Now, these other accounts of creation... I would say, and if you're a believer, you'd probably say too that they are mythical accounts. They talk about other divine beings and how they created the worlds. But here's the thing. Everybody in the ancient world, including the Israelites who just came out of Egypt, right? 1400 BC, they just came out of Egypt. And this is when Moses is actually saying, okay, I'm going to tell you a story about how we even got here. And he writes Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in that, he talks about the creation account. Well, other people had other views of how the, cre- the worlds were created. And through archaeology, we've actually discovered some of these. You can actually read, they have translations now, you can read like the Gilgamesh epic or Enuma Elish or these other accounts, these mythical accounts of how the worlds came to be. Here's the thing. Main point here, okay, if you checked out, if you're like, dude, I thought, it, I, thought I didn't realize I was in school right now. I thought this was church, you know. Like, here's my main point. Here, main point, when Moses writes Genesis 1, he is writing to confront rebuke and challenge all the other views of how the worlds came into being. The Israelites, look, they didn't have Genesis 1 yet, right? By definition, they're reading it for the first time when Moses wrote it. And so they have these other views like uh, of, of other gods that created the worlds and now they're trying to get their heads around, no, really there's only one God and his name is Yahweh and they're trying to figure this out. And Moses says, look, let me tell you how the worlds really came to be. And, and here's what's fascinating. It is all, in all those other creation accounts, the one common theme is that there were multiple divine beings 
who through great struggle and conflict and battles, that they rose to the top to become king of creation. There's a struggle, there's a conflict. In some accounts, they have to, like, the divine being has to defeat the sea creatures. Remember, release the Kraken, whatever movie that was. You know, like, um, there's, you know, a lot of different views of, of the things that the divine being would have to do to ascend to the throne over creation. Here in Genesis 1, Moses says, uh-uh, our God sits back and breathes creation into existence. He's not struggling with anything. There is no competition, no competitor. There is nobody that he has to defeat to become king of the universe. Our God reigns. He sits back and speaks creation into existence. In fact, I think Moses actually takes, I think God has a sense of humor. Sometimes it's, it's sometimes you got to kind of like think a little bit about it. Um, but in, in like Genesis 1, ooh, that's not good. My Bible. God's going to strike me. <laughs> um, in, in Genesis 1, uh, 21, it says that God created the sea creatures. And that, that may mean nothing to you, but from an ancient worldview, that, you, don't, you don't create sea creatures. You do battle against them. You fight against them. You're scared of them. That's the way that the ancient myths work. And here it just says that God's sitting back and just says, exist. <laughs> and they existed. Or how about the sun, the moon, and the stars? Like, you probably know the, the, the sun and the moon especially were, were objects of worship in, in, in today too. But I mean, in the ancient world especially, people often thought that the moon was a representation of a divine being. The sun was a, reputa- a representation of a divine being. And here in Genesis 1, uh, 16, it just says that God made the two great lights. This is, this is actually funny here. He made the two great lights. Like the, the really great light, the sun, and then the lesser light, the moon. And I can imagine somebody saying, what about all those little lights out there, those twinkling ones? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot, yeah. Yeah, God made those too. Look, and the stars. It's like he, he almost forgot to mention it. Oh, yeah, by the way, he made the stars too. 100, 200, 300 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. <laughs> you know, I forgot about that. Yeah, that. yeah, he breathed those out too. Our God effortlessly breathes creation into existence. You ever look at how massive the universe is? I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to pretend to like quote this and that and wax eloquent or whatever. But you get a small glimpse of how ridiculous the universe is. And you've got to ask, why did God do that? I mean, one solar system would have been enough, right? But he creates this massive universe to make it unmistakable, make his majesty unmistakable. To make it, as the Psalms say, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I think he wanted to scream at us through his universe that he reigns, that he is in control. That there is no other, there is no competitor, there is no competition. God reigns over the universe. You know, I, you know, when you look at Genesis 1, it almost makes like human pride, I mean, embarrassing, right? I mean, it's pretty comical. When you, if, Gen, if Genesis 1 is true, then it is comically embarrassing, 
how we try to make much of ourselves instead of much of God. In fact, we see this just a few pages in Genesis. Uh, you go to Genesis 11, we have this, this uh, the Tower of Babel story, right? Where you have uh, a bunch of people, they, they, they get together, um, they, they, you know, all, all, all humanity comes together, they, they pool all their power, all their wisdom, and, and they get together and, and, and they start building something, you know, they, they get together, they're building, they're working night and day, doing all this, and God's like, I wonder what's going on down there. And they get together, and it says that they were doing this to make a name for themselves, right? That's the great sin of Babel is, is coming together to make a name for yourself instead of making much of God. And they finally get done with this product, and they say, God, I know you're powerful, but look at what we created. And God says, what is that? And they say, it's a tower. <laughs> <laughs> And it says, I love what it says. It says, that, it, says that God, it says that God had to like come down. God came down to see what they're doing. He's like, what, what do you, what's all this? Oh, it's a tower. <laughs> it's kind of cute. It's got stairs around it. That's pretty good, you know. And, but it's just this ridiculous offense to God. Like, look at what we can do, God. We've got a tower. <laughs> But that, that, the, the, the sin of Babel is replicated throughout history. It's replicated in all of our lives. God, I, I know you breathe stars into existence. That's pretty good stuff. I, I get you that. I give you that. You know, the sun, the moon, you know. But God, I mean, seriously, like I'm a CEO of a million-dollar company, God. I know you're pretty powerful, but have you seen how many Facebook friends I have? <laughs> I just bench-pressed 300 pounds, God. I mean... It's, it's, it, it's ridiculous. It really is. One of the most, fun, I mean, I try to keep in shape, okay, as much as I can. I got four kids. That that's keep, keeps me in shape enough right there. But it, it is pretty sad, you guys. You go to the gym, all the mirrors. I mean, seriously, like, it's, it's, it's depressing, really. It's like, like really, you're going to make much of yourself. <laughs> Either this God exists, and that's ridiculous, or he doesn't exist, and we really are that great. I don't know any other middle option. God reigns. The, the Bible begins, okay, this is the first chapter. This is the opening scene. This is, this is foundational, is that the God we serve is sovereign. And I don't know what it is. I, and correct me if I'm wrong. It just, it just seems like over the last, I don't know, few decades or whatever, I feel like the sovereignty of God and let me just, I know there's debates about the particulars of how that works out. I'm not even talking about predestination, free will, all that stuff. I'm just talking the, the general point that God is king, we are not. I just feel like that's becoming a doctrine, a truth about God that is becoming tolerated rather than delighted in. I, I see, you know, you start talking about the sovereignty of God, that God can do what he wants, that he has the sovereign freedom to be God. And sometimes that just makes people really uncomfortable. But I think that the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God, the transcendence of God should be something that we don't just tolerate, but that we delight in. Look, I've been uh, studying the Bible professionally for 20 years, okay? And some, some things, you know, uh, over, hopefully over 20 years, like some doc, some things in the text get more clear, right? I mean, hopefully these things that like 20 years ago, I was like, 
I don't really understand that. And I, there's some things I now I understand them better. And some things I thought I knew for sure <laughs> that were really clear. And those have become more complicated, right, over 20 years. And, and some things I've, 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 uh, I've changed my, my mind on. I mean, hopefully, right? Hopefully I didn't know everything as a 21-year-old. And I've changed my mind on these things. But the one thing that the more I read Scripture, the more I study Scripture, I see more clear with every ounce of study is that God is sovereign and that he is free to be sovereign the way that he sees fit. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. I don't always understand that. I mean, I, I, I'm one of those guys that I got lists of questions. Like, I don't know why this happens and this happens. I don't know why there's so much evil in the world. God, why don't you just intervene and stop it now? Why is there suffering? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? I get that. But at the end of that protest must be a posture of God. You are God. I am not. And I do rejoice in that fact. Because this world would be way more screwed up if I had my way. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is, is uh, uh, the story of uh, Nebuch- uh, da- uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with the fiery furnace thing, Daniel 3. And um, you had this scene where uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's ruling over really the, the known world at that, at that time, and, and he builds this massive statue of himself. And he says, hey, when the band plays, everybody's going to bow down and worship my statue. And if anybody doesn't worship the statue, they will be thrown in the fiery furnace. You know, you know this story, right? And so he, he, you know, the band strikes up, plays some music, and everybody bows down. But there's three Hebrew boys, probably teenagers, who stand tall and proud. And Nebuchadnezzar runs up to them and says, look, I'm going to try this again. If you don't bow down to my statue, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And the three boys, I love what they say. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. All right. Our God whom we serve, he's able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from this fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar. But then they say something fascinating. He will deliver us from this fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, but if he does not, we will not serve you and your gods, O king. Our God, he's sovereign. He can deliver us. There's no, there's, it's not, you know, effortlessly, he can deliver us. But our God is free not to deliver us. That's the God we serve. And 170,000 Christian martyrs a year have in one way or another echoed that same phrase. Our God is free to deliver. He's also free not to deliver because he is king and we are not. And in pain and confusion and the mystery, we must embrace this God. This is the God of Genesis 1. But Genesis 2 um, comes on and gives us a very different version of God. Ah, that's a bad way of saying it, version of God. It gives us the other side of this God. Because if God is only sovereign, if God is only free, if he is only transcendent, and yet he is not personal, then I would question the goodness of God. But Genesis 2 gives us a very different emphasis here, okay? So beginning in 2.4 uh, to 2.25, the rest of Genesis 2, um, we see something different happen here. Look at 2.4. Uh, just 
read it like that. Um, it says, uh, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Does anybody know the, the, the Hebrew word or name lying behind the English capitals, all caps, L-O-R-D? Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Okay, so my name's Preston. God's name is Yahweh. I am a father. That's like a title, husband, whatever. And God is Elohim. He is a divine being. Okay, Elohim is like father. It's, it's, it's describing kind of what he is. He's a divine being. Yahweh is his personal name. Now, in the ancient world, when you reveal your name, to, your personal name to somebody, that is just laying a bridge of intimacy. That's how relationships begin with the exchange of names. So it's a pretty big deal here that God's going to reveal his name. Now, here's the thing. Remember chapter 1, 35 times we see Elohim. How many times do we see Yahweh? None. Yahweh, the term Yahweh, never occurs in chapter 1. It occurs for the first time in 2.4, and now it occurs 20 times in chapter 2. 2.4 to 2.25. Every time you see God, it's always now fronted with Yahweh God, Yahweh God, Yahweh God. I mean, you can't see, I mean, uh, 2.5, uh, Yahweh, the Lord God had not caused it to rain. 2.7, the Lord God formed. 2.8, Lord God, all over and over and over. Moses is doing this intentionally. He wants us to know that this powerful, divine, transcendent being also has a name. And he wants us to know this God on a he wants, the, he, the, he wants us to know him on a personal level. Also, um, I mean, if you just look at the way God acts in Genesis 2, it, it looks, I, I can almost sympathize with people that say, this can't be the same God. Because he, he acts so differently. In Genesis 1, he's hurling the universe into existence. And then in Genesis 2, he's playing in the dirt. <laughs> I mean, Literally. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says that he, he formed man from the dust of the ground. And, th- and that word formed is used of like a potter that forms a work of art with clay, intimately working with clay, displaying wisdom and ingenuity in the product. And so God is, is forming mankind from the dust. And then it says that he breathed into his nostrils. See, you see, in Genesis 1, he just hurls the universe into existence. He doesn't do that in Genesis 2 with mankind. He doesn't just speak mankind into existence. He gets down in the dirt and grabs Adam's face and breathes life into his nostrils. And that, that's an that's a intimate picture. I mean, I could... I, I could prove that and say, all right, turn to your neighbor and breathe into their nostrils, you know. <laughs> you get out of my space, right? I mean, that, 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 you only do that if, 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 there's a, if there's intimacy going on there. And, and then in chapter 2, verse 18, he saw that, that Adam was lonely, that he was alone, and, 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 and God cared about that. He could, that the, you know, if he was only sovereign, he could have said, look, dude, I'm king. You're not. Deal with it. You got work to do in my garden. But he doesn't. He's like, oh, God, he's, he's alone. He, he needs a helpmate. He needs a partner. And so he creates Eve. G- Genesis 2.19 is, is one of my favorite verses in this section. And th- th- these are one of those verses that, that you can read over and over, and you just, you just pass right over it. But if you really linger on what's going on here, 
I mean, it's, it's a really almost absurd picture of God here in 2.19. It says that um, out of the ground, the Lord God, there's that, you know, Yahweh God, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Does that seem odd to you? <laughs> I mean, the God of Genesis 1 is hurling the universe into existence, and now he's like, He's like bringing these animals and setting them before the feet of Adam. He's just bringing these animals and steps back and, and, and he's waiting. What's, it, what's he going to call these creatures? You know, in Genesis 1, it's God, na- God names the universe, right? He, keeps, he calls this and names that. And then now he says, Adam, you have a try. It's fun. Why, why don't you start naming these animals? And the, and the idea of naming or calling is a demonstration of authority over, right? Because God told Adam, you're going to have dominion and you're going to reign over my earth. And this is the, fir- this is the beginning. Now you're going to reign over these animals. And it says that God sits back it says, and waits to see what the man is going to call them. You know, imagine a- Adam's over here, you know, um, animals. And God's like, no, no, no. I mean, like, like, like individually, like what are these things going to be called, you know? Here, try this one, you know, and it's a little furry animal, and, you know, and, and Adam's like, dog? I don't know. <laughs> and God's like, oh, we, could, we can go with, if you want to go with dog, we'll go with dog. This is your choice, Adam. It's just not really sitting right with me, but if you want dog, we can go with dog. And Adam's like, how about cat? I don't know. And Yeah, I like cat better. Let's go with cat. You want to go with cat? We'll go with cat. And over and over and over, with the, the picture of God, you ever picture God like some angry parent sitting back in the corner, tapping his foot, kind of distant, kind of cold, but when you, when you mess up, he's ready to jump in and spank you. You know, you mess up and you get it, and then he steps back and says, don't do that again. The picture of God in Genesis 2 is of an overjoyed parent on Christmas Day who finds inherent delight in giving good gifts to his children. A father who is overjoyed to see his creation, his image bearers, his people engage in and delight in and enjoy God's gift of creation. God inherently enjoys that, and he created us for that. All the way back in Genesis 1, we see the most absurd statement in all ancient religious history. That may be an overstatement, but it's pretty close. The most absurd statement in all ancient religious history, at least one of them, is that God creates male and female in his very image. In the ancient world, the idea of being created in the the image of God wasn't unknown, but it was reserved only for kings. King of Egypt believed he was created in God's image. King of Assyria, image of God. Only kings, those who were at the apex of the social strata, were considered to be created in God's image. And again, I think Genesis 1 was written with that in view, saying, no, the God we serve values all people, and all people possess inherent worth. Old, young, smart, not smart, literate, illiterate, black, white, brown, successful, unsuccessful, a great job, homeless, 
super healthy or a quadriplegic, you possess inherent worth if you have the divine breath in your lungs. That is one of the most fundamental things that sets Christianity apart from other religions is that all people, if you have the breath of God in your lungs, you possess infinite worth and value, not because of who you are, what you do, but because of whom you reflect. And what's fascinating is this whole statement about the image of God. In Genesis 1, Genesis 1 uh, talks about the six days of creation, and the sixth day comes at the end, and the first five days are, are, are talked about pretty quickly. If you just add up the words, it's just like day one, boom, day two, boom, day three, day four, day five, and then day six. It gets about three times as much attention. And then it's describing humans being created in God's image as the pinnacle of his creation. Look, I love, I love beauty. I love to travel. I love beautiful scenery. Uh, my, wife, my, fr- my family and I went to the uh, Grand Tetons last summer. We've been to uh, Yosemite a few times in California and Yellowstone and, and I've tra- traveled the world to some extent. Been in Nepal, s- sat at the base of the Himalayan mountain range and seen the sun rise up over Mount Everest. Swam in turquoise waters of South Pacific. And I imagine God looking around at his creation and being pretty, pretty excited about the beauty that he's infused into his creation. But I also imagine God looking at these galaxies, these solar systems, these snow-capped mountain peaks, these beautiful sunrises, and he's looking around at all this and saying, that's pretty good, but there is all of those put together do not hold a candle to the beauty and ingenuity and wisdom that is in you. I'm going to guess that there's a lot of you here, maybe some of you that don't believe that. And you're trying to gain your self-worth by doing this or becoming that. You're trying to match up to false standards of beauty. You're hurting yourself because you don't think that you have inherent self-worth. Or you're trying to overwork, you're becoming a workaholic because you think that the only value you can have is by becoming successful in your job. The Bible begins with a fundamental statement that you possess infinite worth because of whom you reflect. If you are human, then you are the object of God's free delight. He created you. He doesn't put up with you. He created you because he wants to delight in you. And you say, yeah, but I I screw up. I I sin like crazy. I've got addictions. I've got habits. Well, God doesn't delight in sin, but he delights in people even though they sin. Because God's love is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what Christ has done 2,000 years ago. That is what has sealed God's love for you. You see, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you have these two different portraits of God. Same God different portraits and I think it's I think all even as I've been talking this morning you you probably gravitate to one more than the other but here's the thing we need to embrace both aspects of God because if you only see God as transcendent and sovereign then God will become cold and distant he will be that angry father that just spanks you when you mess up but if you only see God as near and intimate then you will belittle God you'll treat him like a friend but not a king And so we need to make sure that we treat both together. And if I can be totally honest, in my 20 plus years as a believer, you know, 
I feel like the sovereignty thing, I, I feel like I get that. It's hard to wrap my mind around. Sometimes it does grate on me a little bit because I want to be my own sovereign king. But I feel like if God is God, it just makes sense that he would be king. The one I struggle with the most is that that king wants to be near to me. That he has the ability to save me? Okay, I can get that. That he, that he can forgive my sins and that Christ paid all that? I, I kind of get that. But that he wants to delight in me and that he can't wait until I wake up in the morning and open my eyes because he wants to engage me. He wants to be with me. He wants to pursue me. He wants to be in relationship with me. I have a hard, hard time. Hard time believing that. I'm going to have Jake come up and uh, I want to pray for us. And uh, if, if there is one or other one of the other of these characteristics of God, I want to pray for you that you would uh, embrace both characteristics. And if there's one of these that you struggle with, then you too pray to God that he would um, make this more known to you. God, we thank you for being a God whom we did not create, but that you have called us to embrace. Lord, we thank you that you are king, that you are sovereign and that you are in the heavens and you do whatever you please, Lord. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, especially with all the suffering and evil and sin in the world, Lord. We have so many questions, Lord, but we want to trust you, Lord, that you are God, that you are good, and that you will be perfect in love and perfect in justice. God, I also pray that for those of us like myself that struggle with the intimacy, God, uh, we can't feel you or touch you or see you, Lord. Sometimes it's hard to hear you. Um, God, I pray that you would make yourself known to us through, through your people, through your word, through your spirit. Um, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to us not only as a sovereign king, but as an intimate friend who cares for our deepest needs, Lord. Pray that your son would be lifted up for the rest of today, Lord, in Christ's name.